The content that's explicit will not come with a warning except for this. So bear in mind what I am saying. This show is explicit content. It's Thursday, April 26, 2018 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Can you hear me now? No, I'm not here to sell you Verizon or to defect and show up on Sprint commercials in a brazen act of spokesman poaching. No, that is a quote from the transcript of EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt's soundproof booth. Can you hear me now? It's like every person who's ever called from one of those phones that are attached to the back of the airplane seat. Hey, guess where I'm calling from? The same with the $43,000 phone booth, which was among the things that Pruitt had to explain to a feisty set of congressmen today. Okay, I will come clean. Pruitt did build a $43,000 soundproof booth It did violate federal spending laws, according to the Government Office of Accountability, and it wasn't actually a skiff, you know, the sensitive compartmental information facility. He told Congress in December, oh, it's a skiff. It wasn't a skiff. And all that's important because I want to make extra clear that we have no real proof that Pruitt actually ever said, can you hear me now in this possibly unethically or even illegally built non-skiff? And the reason... I say that is because I want to acknowledge facts are facts and fiction is fiction. You are right, Scott Pruitt, testifying before Congress today. And among the facts that came out at your hearing is that you believed you were getting death threats, but your head of security disagreed and he was demoted. You were flying everywhere first class until the news reported on that. And you chalk that up to the learning process. You tried to get raises for loyalist staffers. Those raises were denied by the White House, but you pushed them through anyway. Now, about those raises, Pruitt said on Fox eight days ago that he only found out about the raises nine days ago. But under questioning from New York Democrat Paul Tonko, yeah, that wasn't true either. In uh, internal emails, Sarah Greenwald, one of the aides who received a substantial raise, stated that you (laughs) were aware of and supported the raises. Was that true? I think um, with respect to the raises, what's well, important... Yet was that true? Congressman, I have five I minutes, so I, I have to move along. I was, was not aware true? of the amount, nor was well, I... Not the amount. Aware, were you aware of the raises? I was not aware of the amount, nor was I aware that, uh, of the bypassing or the uh, PPO process not being respected. If, if, well, well, then I'm concerned that you have no idea of what is going on in your name at your agency. I enjoyed that congressional banter. Were you aware of the raises? Well, let me just say this about that. No, no. No, 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 no. That's not an answer to were you aware? Well, let me just, let me lay the predicate. You have to answer yes or no. And the past tense of no, as in known, I've known about them for a couple days. I've known about some aspects of them. That's not good enough. That's not good at all. So let's recount. Here's how it went. Fox interviewer. Hey, do you know about those raises? Pruitt, no. Congressman, while Pruitt was under oath. Hey, do you know about those raises? Pruitt, Uh, Yeah, I guess I did. Of course, you know, if you need to make clear, look, though I didn't know everything about him, I didn't know if the signing bonus would be given via a check or direct deposit. I don't know if the employee filed as head of household. It's hard for me to say what the take-home income would have been. And, you know, since we're talking about checks, maybe it was traveler's check and first-class tickets. That eats up a lot of a traveler's check. That was just some of the explanation that Scott Pruitt offered in his defense. I have to say, he did quite terribly in defending his behavior. And I have a theory as to why. It's that his behavior was unethical, 
blatantly, clearly, embarrassingly unethical. Now, as far as the junk science he champions, he at least can draw upon decades of misdirection and obfuscation that's readily used. It's right there at the fingertips of all the anti-regulatory zealots. But when it comes to the planes and the raises and the phones and the petty firings and the trading of his position for the Airbnb deal of a lifetime, there's really no excuse at all. Still, He serves at the pleasure of the president, and deregulating a coal mine apparently buys a lot of goodwill with this White House. On the show today, I spiel about another administration official and his testimony. That official was the testimony, and the forum was the highest court in the land, Fox and Friends. But first, Donald Trump's international businesses have actually been quite extensively covered by the press. But until the Southern District of New York got involved, it was unclear if Trump as an international businessman, would face much legal exposure. Now it looks like he might. So from time to time here on The Gist, I'd like to take a deal and talk to reporters who have gone inside the deal and debrief them. Today, reporters from the podcast Reveal are on to talk about Trump and the Malaysians. Previously on this show, I've interviewed Adam Davidson about the Trump Organization's unfinished 33-floor hotel and condo in Baku, Azerbaijan. There was also the aborted 47-story residential tower in Batumi, which is a town on the Black Sea in the former Soviet Republic of Georgia. Today, Trump Inc., very good podcast, got into the connection between Trump, Trump's lawyer, and another of the lawyer's clients. He's a guy who's trying to get Vietnam to change its gambling laws And what Trump Inc. revealed is that the lawyer representing that businessman was the guy who set up the call, the very first call, between President Trump and the Vietnam prime minister. All right, I've got another one. And this one is a Michael Cohen connection. Michael Cohen famously had three clients, Trump, Sean Hannity, and Elliot Broidy. Cohen arranged for a payoff of a uh, Playboy model that Broidy had impregnated, apparently. Broidy, though he was convicted of corruption and bribery in New York in 2009, had been negotiating with a shady Malaysian businessman. And uh, if it worked out, if if Broidy somehow got the Justice Department to drop charges against the businessman, Broidy would earn tens of millions of dollars. The investigation, what made this businessman shady, was a deal called 1MDB. Well, now, joining me now are Amy Walter and Patrick Madden from the Reveal podcast. They have a story up about this bit of Malaysian chicanery. Hello, guys. Hi. Hey, how's it going? So tell us, before we even mention the word Trump, what is 1MDB and how did that part of it become a scandal? Right. I, I think it became a scandal for us in the U.S. around July of 2016, Andrew McCabe, who's become somewhat famous now, then he was deputy director of the FBI, um, joined Loretta Lynch, then attorney general with the Obama administration in a pretty big press conference. This was the biggest kleptocracy asset recovery initiative. Basically, they were trying to recover as more assets than they ever had, more money properties, movies, mm-hmm. rights than they ever had um, from 
with this one MDB. There had been rumors, there had been articles, there had been much talk about the Malaysian government and specifically the Malaysian prime minister who started this fund. It was supposed to be a, a fund for the development of Malaysia, taking some of that money for himself. Right. And basically what I just want to lay this out, what one M. DB was, was a fund, like a sovereign wealth fund for the country of Malaysia to make money on real estate deals. But this money was the property of the people of Malaysia. Only the folks running the fund stole from themselves. Is that exactly right. accurate? It started okay. with, with one, one million, I believe, ringgit, uh, Malaysian <laughs> ringgit from the Malaysian government. And, and things got crazy from there. You know, a right. million ringgit here, a million ringgit there. <laughs> Soon you're talking about real ringgit. So why why does the U.S. even care? Some Malaysians stole from other Malaysians. Sad. I think it's but. essentially because so much of the money, A, was being laundered here in the U.S. through various places like, you know, high-end real estate, hotels, yachts, jewelry, artwork, even movies um and also record labels, record labels and also just because you know the it affected the global financial system in which the u.s is obviously the you know a main part of that right but i don't know that the u.s has jurisdiction except for the money laundering part so these malaysians these connected malaysians the allegations go stole this money and poured it into u.s properties and buildings and even the movie the wolf of wall street during the Obama administration, uh, even before Loretta Lynch, Eric Holder, when he was attorney general, made a big deal out of this kleptocracy recovery initiative. This, this was going to be a new thing that they were going to do, and they were going to go after these kleptocrats, these, these foreign leaders who were stealing from their people. And even now that Jeff Sessions says it's, it's still going there, they're after this money, they listed over a billion dollars of assets that they were trying to seize. They haven't actually, when I spoke to the Justice Department, they said that they haven't actually gotten any of that back, mm -hmm. despite the fact that Leonardo DiCaprio, who we'll probably mention in a minute, uh, says that he actually turned in uh, an Oscar of Marlon Brando's he got as a gift as part of this. Uh, Miranda Kerr, a uh, Victoria's Secret angel, also returned a beautiful heart-shaped diamond pendant mm -hmm. that she received. But but yeah, the Justice Department is is still trying to get those assets back. And I think just, you know, to reiterate, like the main point is they're trying to seize through civil asset forfeiture as much of the, the these proceeds as possible and then in the end ideally return them to the people of Malaysia or whichever country, you know, the funds were stolen from. Right. Obviously that's challenging. Right. Yeah. I mean, I mean, how many Malaysians, like, how would they share the Brando Oscar? Would they pass it around? <laughs> it just seems, I understand the diamond necklace, or just Miranda Kerr could do personal appearances. Some seems impra impractical. All right, so as I, under, as I took it from your reporting, there are pretty much two strains that might be related about how this uh, relates to Donald Trump and those in his circle. Let's start with the second part first. There are people who are Trump associates and not just associates, in one case, a household name, in one case, the guy who ran his, uh, ran his inauguration, Tom Barack, who definitely had dealings with key figures in this scandal. Could you tell me about them? 
Yeah. I mean, that was one of the most interesting things that we found. If you look at this complaint, it mentions the Lermitage Hotel, this Beverly Hills Hotel, who I hadn't heard of, that I hadn't heard of before. But what it was, it used to be a Raffles Hotel, and it was owned by Colony Capital, Thomas Barrick's company at the time. Now, this was 2009. And you remember, uh, I think we all remember, it was the middle of the Great Recession. So there wasn't a lot of money going around. And according to the Justice Department, complaint, Jolo used stolen money. This is literally what it says. Jolo used stolen money to purchase that hotel. And the hotel was owned by Barrick, Barrick's Colony Capital at the time. What was stranger, we noticed, was that looking through his public documents, uh, a very similar amount of money, around around about $45 million that he made on the hotel, that Colony Capital made on the hotel, Thomas Barrick gave over to Jared Kushner's 666 Fifth Avenue, which I think your audience might have heard of. It's become famous now to use on Jared Kushner's debt in that property. So it definitely raised a lot of questions for us. We don't know. Uh, there's no indication that anyone knew where the money came from, but uh, but there's a lot we don't know. So you mentioned not J-Lo, but Jolo. Who's this guy? So, so Jolo was this guy who wore many hats but you know he he's described in a, in a lot of different places as this kind of party guy like he was showing up in LA New York City at the hot nightclubs throwing with Paris Hilton, with Paris Hilton mm-hmm. he throwing around a lot of cash. I mean, so much cash that people didn't know. The question started getting raised. Where is this guy getting all this money? Reporting first out of um, Malaysia, the Wall Street Journal started showing his connections to the prime minister of Malaysia and specifically the role that Jolo played in um, helping set up this sovereign wealth fund, but also, as it turns out, part of this scheme to divert the money from that, putting it through these offshore accounts that ended up in these, these uh, you know, the hotel that Amy just mentioned, all, all the sort of high-end real estate deals. And that was the start. It was the Lamertage Hotel that was owned by Thomas Barracks Colony Capital was kind of the first. But then he ended up purchasing a lot of other properties, some of which involved other close friends of Trump. And, and one property was owned by Trump himself. Yeah. And we should also point out that Joe Lowe, that's not sure for, you know, Joseph Lopez. The guy's name is J-H-O-L-O-W, or at least that's how we uh, Englishize it. Now, right. well, he's Malaysian investor. How connected is he to the president? Like, what does that mean, Malaysian investor? Yeah, he started out um, in in these uh, prep school or these sorry these public schools in Britain, um, the Harrow School. He got to be friends of the family of the Prime Minister of Malaysia. Then his stepson Riza Aziz. And then went on to Wharton here in the United States. And already when he was at Wharton, he started making a circle around himself of people he he would end up leaning on for financial uh, dealings, investments, things like that in the future. And he started to create a circle around him of of very well-off Arabs, typically from, from the Gulf. And that's who he ended up doing a lot of these deals with, that very initial deal on the Lermitage Hotel, the person who helped smooth it over, according to emails we've gotten from Global Leaks, was the ambassador to the United Arab Emirates, Yosef Al-Oteba. 
Yeah. And by the way, the UAE is also involved in potentially making a loan to the Kushners right. uh, for the uh, 666 address. It's pretty interrelated. Aside from that one purchase that might have the same exact amount showed up in a Tom Barak uh, funding of Kushner Enterprises, were there any 1MDB sales to a Trump associate? Yeah, I mean, one of them that you may be very familiar with there in New York is the Park Lane Hotel. That that was particularly interesting. You know, if you talk to New York real estate people, a lot of them will tell you Trump was very close, has a very small circle of New York real estate partners, maybe friends, some partners, some friends. And one of them includes Steve Witkoff. And Steve Witkoff actually partnered with Joe Lowe on the Park Lane Hotel, formerly the Helmsley Hotel, right there at the very southern end of Central Park. A beautiful place if you could go in. It has great views of the park, perfect location. Uh, and now it, they're trying desperately to sell it because it's caught up in all this legal business. And so what is Joe Lowe's status uh, as far as U.S. investigators go? So, I mean, he right now, he his whereabouts are unknown. Oh, I love that. Um, <laughs> whereabouts. And there, or, we where, say, where are whereabouts ever? But law and order episode. Yeah. <laughs> but they did seize, and, and this was the Indonesian authorities, seized his super yacht that was called the Equanimity, mm-hmm. which was valued at a quarter of a billion dollars, which is just mind-boggling. And like it had all the... Accoutrement. All the accoutrement you want on a quarter of a billion dollar yacht. Uh, Pool, jacuzzi. I I think there was a helicopter. Brando statuettes. (laughs) Right. I I don't know. But he was, but I guess when they took the boat, he wasn't on the boat. I don't know if he jumped off, (laughs) took a helicopter. Yeah. So the, your story starts actually where uh, our interview will end because it's, because I'm kind of getting tighter and tighter and closer to Trump himself. So when the president of Malaysia, uh, under investigation, comes to America, where does he stay but the Trump Hotel? And right. I'm, you might say, or I might say, okay, that's a couple of uh, bucks a night. But you calculated the bill, and it was what? Well, I mean, there were there were sixty some people staying there, and we have evidence of that. And uh, they were staying from anywhere from a night or two to over a week. So we kind of added that all up right. at at $5.50 a right. night, which if you include taxes is pretty fair. I right. mean, that's actually a low price. You could spend a lot more. But that's, and that's not counting how much was spent at the bar, the right. restaurant there. Right. I mean, exactly. that's, that's the low end estimate. Presuming that they did pay, then uh, that would be over $100,000. So, you know, when you're talking about a lot of these funds, it's not a lot, but it is yeah. a generous gesture. Let's and say. again, this is a group that is under potential investigation by the Justice Department, which the president, there's some separation, but the president also has some sway over. The Justice Department is investigating a group of people, and these group of people are paying at least $100,000 to a business that is run by the family of the president. I didn't say anything inaccurate there. So as we talk about the emoluments clause, which is just in general taking money from any foreigners, you know, some businessman from Canada comes to the Trump Hotel, that might be an emoluments clause violation. But this is a more specific, we're not alleging a quid pro quo, we're just laying it out, money into the pockets of the Trump family, money coming from the pockets of the head of Malaysia who is under investigation. Yeah, I mean, this would be sort of a textbook 
example of a potential emoluments issue because it's the government of Malaysia spending money at a business that is owned by, at the end of the day, Trump owns, you know, didn't divest his ownership um, of, of the Trump Hotel. Right, and there's a trust that he can access at any time. So the, right. you know, so this and he is has a said that I will take all the money that is uh, paid by foreigners and put it in a fund. But there is no evidence that he has done that. And there is also a question of how are you going to do that? Like, like you say, they go and pay for an expensive meal at the bar. They know that, and then there's a, a bunch of foreigners and a bunch of Americans paying, and one pays the bill. How would they possibly know if the money's coming from foreigners or Americans? Right. And so the, this emoluments clause, I mean, it doesn't say, oh, well, well, as long as you give the money back to the Treasury Department, everything's no. cool. Which is what Trump claims he's doing. Right. I mean, it's, it's, it says, you know, official cannot accept a gift uh, or payment from, you know, a, a foreign government. And so that, now whether or not, I mean, there are three emoluments lawsuits that, that were filed essentially looking at this. One in New York was tossed out because the the plaintiff essentially didn't have standing because it was filed by this watchdog group. The second emoluments case, which is happening here in D.C. in Maryland, filed by the um, attorneys general here, that one actually has a good case of going forward. The judge just ruled that they did meet the initial standing test. Right, because it it was brought by other hoteliers who were saying, wait a minute, my business is being hurt by this business. That means you have legal standing to bring a case. Right, essentially, and, and the judge said you need to focus this case on the Trump Hotel and not say his properties in Florida and whatnot. But it, at least right now, this this emoluments case brought by D.C. and Maryland is going forward. Mm-hmm. Reveal is the name of the show, and you could hear the episode about the 1MDB and how it ties into the Trump family. It was reported by Amy Walters of Reveal and Patrick Madden of WAMU. Thank you guys for talking to me. Thank Thanks, you, Mike. Mike. What comes before anything? What have we always said is the most important thing? Breakfast. Family. Family, right. (laughs) I'm Gabriel Roth. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. And I'm Carvel Wallace. And we're the hosts of Mom and Dad Are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast, which is now coming to you every Thursday. You'll hear us discuss our parenting triumphs and fails, uh, our recommendations, and answering your questions every week. Now we're supposed to banter. Is that the banter portion? What you're hearing now is the kind of high-level banter that we'll be bringing to you. Mom and Dad are fighting at slate.com slash mom and dad or wherever you get your podcast. And now the spiel. In the underworld, in the Palace of Hades, sit three judges, Minos, Radamanthus, and Achis. Achis is the doorkeeper of Hades for he was said to be in control of the keys of the underworld. Today, the judges of that underworld go by three different names, Brian, Steve, and Ainsley. Donald Trump was on Fox and Friends, and those are the aforementioned friends of Fox and Friends. He gave a wide-ranging interview, so wide-ranging, that CNN ran a story headlined, The 53 Most Stunning Lines, from Donald Trump's Fox and Friends interview. It's a 30-minute interview, 53 stunning lines. Now, I got to say, this is a gross exaggeration. Fifty, There weren't 53 stunning lines. I mean, stunning line number one, according to this Chris Saliza article, was about Melania's birthday and him saying, maybe I didn't get her so much, 
when asked, what present did you get her? That's stunning. It's stunning that the president would be thoughtless. That's about as stunning as a jackass braying. So I don't think many were stunning. I think 12 were unhinged, 8 were nonsensical, 18 were untruthful, and 11 were annoying. And a couple were just plain embarrassing for him, like his defense of Dr. Ronnie Jackson. Figuring you can't spell veterans affair without vetting, the White House decided not to vet Dr. Jackson, it would just be better to vent, not vet, vent about the unfairness of it all after the fact. There was Trump sticking up for the idea that a man's character shows up most in his offspring's academic success. His son is a wonderful boy, goes to Annapolis at the top of his class, one of the finest cadets. Cadets? They're midshipmen. I, a guy whose military experience is based mostly on Stratego, know that. I guess Trump never said he was smarter than the admirals. Another thing Trump never said until now is that, yes, his lawyer, Michael Cohen, paid off Stormy Daniels for him, but he did tell that to the Fox and Friends. He represents me like with this uh, crazy Stormy Daniels deal. He represented me. In fact, at one point, I thought Trump was going to rope in Brian Kilmeade into all this. Brian, you know Michael. Michael's been on your show, I'm sure, a lot. You know, Michael we know. is a good person. Whoa, whoa, was Kilmeade client number four? No, no, it just turns out Trump meant that uh, Cohen had been on Kilmeade's radio show. Trump answered a couple questions, some terrible, some not too terrible. At one point, Steve Ducey put it to the president that James Comey disputes the notion that he ever leaked classified memos. This was part of Trump's answer to that fairly specific question. And you know, the funny thing, he does these memos and then fake news CNN, who's a total fake, you know, they give Hillary Clinton the questions to the debate. Nobody. Can you imagine, by the way, if you gave me the questions to a debate. They would have you out of business yeah. and they'd have me, uh, you better get out of this campaign with that. They don't even bring it up. I mean, CNN, fake news CNN, actually gave the questions. Yeah, but to don't the worry about them. Let's just note that part of Trump's response to Comey possibly leaking memos is that in March of 2016, Hillary Clinton was tipped off in a Democratic Party town hall to a topic of a debate question. She didn't get the exact question. She was tipped off that there might be a question about the death penalty. Luckily, Hillary Clinton knew how to answer a question about the death penalty because of this tip in a debate between her and Bernie Sanders. And how does this matter? So what have I given you so far? I've given you the nonsensical. I've given you the annoying. Now let's hit on the untruthful. You know, we won an election yesterday in Arizona. Nobody talks about it. Of course, when Trump says nobody, he means... Arizona, meantime, has a new congresswoman, Republican Debbie Lesko, winning the special election. She has won. NBC News is now declaring she has won that special election for Congress. Well, the former state senator edged out her Democratic opponent by about five points Tuesday. And that was ABC, MSNBC, and CBS. So after unbidden, Trump implicates himself with Cohen and Stormy Daniels. He is asked by one of the Fox and Friends this question. Well, does it make you want to talk to Mueller and put an end to it? Does and now we have the unhinged. That's what well, again, the problem is that it's such a, uh, it's such, if you take a look, they're so conflicted. The people that are doing the investigation, you have 13 people that are Democrats. You have Hillary Clinton people. You have people that worked on Hillary Clinton's foundation. They're all, I don't mean Democrats. I mean like the real deal. And then you look at the phony uh, Lisa Page and Strzok and the memos back and forth in the FBI. And, and by the way, you take a poll at the FBI. 
I love the FBI. The FBI loves me. But the top people. Okay. In so the at FBI this point, let's bring it down a little. At this point, he starts talking about Andrew McCabe and Andrew McCabe's wife and her run for Congress. And the whole thing ends on a high note. Our okay. Justice Department should be looking at that kind of stuff, not the nonsense of collusion with right. Russia. There is no collusion with me right. and Russia. And everyone knows it. Everyone, we, we talk to you all day, but it looks like you we have could. a million things to do. And the three judges of the underworld began to tug at their collars and awkwardly gulp. Okay, great. I think we got a a sense of the advisability of putting Donald Trump in a room with Robert Mueller. And so the Fox and Friends said goodbye to their president with some niceties about Melania's birthday. And that way, we can all remain friends and the president can get on with his busy schedule of replaying the 2016 Democratic debates and not buying his wife a present. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Pierre Biennemi has assembled a list of the 32 wackiest people who wear shoulder pads at work and are taken in the first round of the NFL draft. Mary Wilson, just senior producer, has a list of one of the most egotistical rappers in the world to take a loud political stance to get attention. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, has a list of the 12 most afternoon-laden months of the year. And we'd like to thank our Slate Plus listeners who help support the show. If you're not yet a member, learn more about the many copious benefits of membership at slate.com slash gist plus the gist here with a list of 25 or 624 of Chicago's oddest lyrics. Umperu deperu duperu and thanks for listening. There is no collusion with me and Russia. And everyone knows.